Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the old Vero Man archaeological site where new discoveries are being made. Whatever it is, whatever the answer is, whatever the earliest human occupation of the site is, whatever kinds of activities we can demonstrate that they were engaged in while on site, we want to talk about that. But whatever it is, we just want to get it right. We want to end that controversy. We'll discuss the history of Florida's phosphate industry. That's really what changed not only the the physical face of the landscape of southwest Florida, but economically, too. It really changed the economics of the area in the beginning of the 20th century and actually throughout the 20th century. And we'll talk about elegant railroad dining cars. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. More than a century after prehistoric human remains were discovered among the bones of extinct animals in Vero Beach, new archaeological discoveries are being made in the same location known as the Old Vero Man site. When a large drainage ditch was dug in Vero in 1913, the bones of prehistoric animals such as mammoth, mastodon, extinct horses, and giant armadillo were discovered. Two years later, as naturalist Frank Ayers walked along the banks of the canal, he noticed what appeared to be a human skull protruding from the dirt. Ayers quickly went to get his friend Isaac Wells, and the two men carefully uncovered the skull and additional human bones. The human bones were mixed in with animal bones that neither man could identify. The bones were discovered within undisturbed stratifications of earth, a black layer over a brown layer. And that piqued the curiosity of the state geologist um, Elias Sellards, who came down with his assistant Herman Gunter and basically went to work. Andy Hemmings from Florida Atlantic University is lead archaeologist at the Old Vero Man site. Then in 1916, early in April and such, they found some um, bones themselves with the extinct animals. The extinct animal list continued to grow and it really started to get the interest of the whole scientific community. So then the critics start showing up. With the discipline of archaeology in its infancy, geologists and anthropologists from Yale University, Johns Hopkins, the University of Chicago, the Carnegie Institution, and the Smithsonian all showed up to offer their opinions. The geologists, led by Sellers, believed that the human bones discovered at the Vero site were from the same Pleistocene period as the extinct animal bones that they had been found with. That meant that humans were here during the Ice Age at least 11,000 years ago. The anthropologists, led by Alice Herdlichka, clung to the prevailing belief of the early 20th century that humans did not occupy North America until just 4,000 years ago. 
They disregarded the geological evidence and relied instead on skull measurements to reach their conclusions. Skull measurements are no longer considered a reliable method of determining the age of bones. The established uh, dogma of the time, and it varied a little bit, was that human beings were recent arrivals in the New World, that there were, in fact, no people here in the Ice Age or at the end of the Pleistocene. So that could mean, depending on what day of the week and whether they'd had their coffee, it could mean 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, 8,000, or maybe, maybe 10. And there's a, you know, a big question mark on that. And so they viewed it, the, the, particularly Herdlichka and Holmes, they viewed it as their job to just find out what was wrong with the site to demonstrate that, in fact, it was not showing people were here in the Pleistocene. Once you already know it, that, that's all they had to do, is, is, is their view of it. And unfortunately, that's uh, not a very scientific view, but uh, they're not around to call them on it right now. <laughs> Without modern carbon dating techniques available to them, the scientists were unable to reach a consensus, and the controversy over the true age of what had been named the Vero Man remained unsolved. They basically went back and forth about, is this a Pleistocene site with human bones and human artifacts from the Pleistocene in these layers? Uh, is it later material deposited in older sediments? Is it all a jumble? And basically... Everyone sort of walked away scratching their heads. Everyone had an opinion, but really nothing conclusive was demonstrated one way or the other. I sort of like to say that the site was left with an asterisk of basically everyone threw up their hands for nearly a century and said, I don't know, and it's unresolved. Well, we have reasons to believe, and we'll come to that shortly, that we really feel this probably is a Paleo-Indian site, that we have some evidence of human occupation between 11 and 14,000 years ago, much like Sellard suggested initially. But the real answer of what we're doing here is we don't care. Whatever it is, whatever the answer is, whatever the earliest human occupation of the site is, whatever kinds of activities we can demonstrate that they were engaged in while on site, we want to talk about that. But whatever it is, we just want to get it right. We want to end that controversy as well as we're able. Discoveries of Clovis points and other tools near the Vero Man site have proven that people did inhabit Florida at least 13,000 years ago. Andy Hemmings believes that new discoveries at the Vero Man site could eventually prove even earlier human habitation. Even here in Vero, just outside of town, there's been a Clovis point found dating to 13,000 years old. It's a diagnostic point form. We have diagnostic point forms after Clovis that we call Swanee here in Florida, uh, just north of us at Helen Blazes, and just south of us um, in St. Lucie County. So in every direction but out to sea, where we really haven't looked yet, we have people on this landscape 12, 13,000 years ago, and we may be pushing that at, at the big water hole with all the plants and animals at that time frame. In, we may be pushing from 12, 13, maybe a hair earlier. We don't know yet. Unfortunately, the original Vero Man bones cannot be tested using modern dating techniques because they have been misplaced over the past century. Material from this site has been shipped to or is housed in at least 22 institutions around the world that I know of. You probably could not have sorted these things farther away with dynamite. They went in every direction. The human remains went back and forth between here, um, the Florida Geologic Survey, the Smithsonian, uh, maybe some other places. We're working on it. We, we think we should know where they are and eventually turn them up. We don't think they're gone. We just think they're kind of hidden. <laughs> filed away. Think the last scene in the first Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> but we have top people working on it. <laughs> if you'll pardon the movie reference. Even more controversy emerged from the original excavations at the old Vero Man site. It was determined that the Vero Man skeletal remains were actually those of a woman. 
The bones identified as skeleton 2 and 3 turned out to be bones from one individual, also a woman. So while there are two Vero women, there is no man from the Vero man site. Andy Hemmings. Yes, it's a cruel hoax. Skeleton 1, found in 1915, October of 1915, was initially called Vero Man. Within a couple of days, they realized it was about a four foot nine tall lady. Then, six months later, pieces of Skeleton 2 and Skeleton 3 are found. They quickly realized that it's one person. Herlichka said that this person was at least five foot ten inches tall. And in 46, we realized um, T. Dale Stewart, who replaced Herlichka at the Smithsonian, said, uh, there's no Vero Man, this is a lady also. So we got problems. It's not the old Vero man site. We, I think it's probably safer at this point to just say the old Vero site, man. <laughs> at the old Vero site, Andy Hemmings is leading a team of young archaeologists. As they end some of the controversies surrounding the century-old dig, they are also making new discoveries. Considering we're coming back to the location a, a, a full century after the initial excavations, the fact that we established and can now fully articulate what that means with a suite of radiocarbon dates, that we've established that the geologic sequence is intact in at least some portion of the site, that we find a black dirt, rather an upland equivalent, we're not in the pond, we're on a dune adjacent to the pond, uh, a black dirt equivalent to Sellard's Van Velkenberg, and that is laying on top of a brown Melbourne formation looking material. But again, not reworked like the pond stuff. We are up on the high and dry ground, and lo and behold, as we've been excavating into them, we actually find some artifacts and what we think are the remains of a, of a fire. We've got 18 square meters of exposed Pleistocene dirt, and in those 18 square meters we found nearly 700 pieces of burnt bone and charcoal. Very suggestive of a human presence, though not as conclusive, and we certainly wouldn't want to call it unequivocal yet, but we need a couple artifacts, an artifact, in the right context, and I think in many respects we vindicate what Sellard said about the site, even if he didn't quite have the right evidence. In 2011, the Journal of Archaeological Science and National Geographic declared that the oldest work of art found in the Americas came from the Old Vero site. It was a 13,000-year-old mammoth bone with the image of a mammoth etched into it. Andy Hemmings says that since the artifact is in private hands, it's impossible to answer critics who doubt the artifact's authenticity. Yeah, it's a little murky, and it was initially said to be from the site, and then it moved to another site. And unfortunately, it's not. I, I've handled it once for for you know several minutes, half an hour. Um, it's very interesting. I have some unanswered questions about it because it's not really available for scientific query at this point, and it seems to not to be clear if it's from the site. I don't really know what to do with it. It's not the only artwork from the Pleistocene. It's not the only proboscidean drawing from the Pleistocene. The others are is equally as enigmatic. Some of them were outright fakes a century ago. I, I just, I don't get to ask, and so I don't get to know or even find out, you know, what to think about it. It's a very interesting drawing. I, I sure hope it's real, and I sure hope it it tells us what we think it tells us. But unfortunately, I, like many things at the Vero site, I just don't know right now. Working an archaeological site can include many days of sifting dirt with no results, but every so often a small discovery can reinvigorate the search for artifacts. On the day we visited the old Vero site, some stone fragments were discovered that further demonstrated prehistoric human habitation of the site.
Just today, uh, flakes of biface resharpening, somebody resharpening points more likely than anything else, uh, in a very high quality coral, fossil coral material from over near the Peace River, Tampa area, probably, probably a good 115 miles from the site. Imagine having to lug a bag of rock that far, or even finish, you know, projectile points. It, uh, you're going to make them last as long as you can on a, on a lithic poor landscape um, and try and avoid having to walk back over there to pick up more. Uh, some of the other interesting things we found this season so far are fragments of uh, a couple of different bones that are of clearly Pleistocene extinct animals. We may have uh, part of the elbow or the ulna of the glyptodont, which is a very unusual animal to, to even be present at a human archaeological site rather than a paleontological site. We found in our, in our back dirt, unfortunately not in a meaningful context, but we found a 8,000 to 9,500 year old Kirk point. It's just a name for this particular form of point, but it tells us that people were here in this spot at least eight, 9,000 years ago and other artifacts that we found non-diagnostics, just pieces of flake chert or a piece of braided cordage between 9,000 and uh, 11,000 years old. We've pushed the clear, unequivocal, undebatable portion of the occupation of the site to 11,000 years old and we're now in many respects, if you'll pardon the metaphor, knocking on the door of the Pleistocene, where we found all that burnt material, we suspect that, that that's going to indicate, if we get an artifact with it, that in fact we have people somewhere in the 12 to 13,000 year old range on this site. The mixture of paleo-Indian remains and those of prehistoric animals found at the Old Vero site a century ago make the potential for today's archaeological excavations particularly interesting. The current investigations may eventually change our understanding of Paleo-Indian life in Florida. Andy Hemmings is lead archaeologist at the Old Vero Man Archaeological Site. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like our annual meeting and symposium, listen to archived editions of this program, and shop for great books on Florida history and culture. While you're there, you can become a member of the Florida Historical Society and receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. By the name of Pike Belonged to the family of Riggins And like an old fool He bought an old mule And he started for the California diggings So haul off your overcoat And roll up your sleeve Mining is a hard kind of labor Haul off your overcoat And roll up your sleeve Mining is a hard kind of labor I believe That's the Idadobe players Performing the song Mining is a hard kind of labor Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The phosphate industry was huge in Florida in the 20th century. Ben, tell us about the history of phosphate here. Phosphate mining is the mining of phosphate rock to extract the uh, element phosphorus. 
Uh, and that particular element is used for a variety of products. Most notably, it's used for uh, fertilizer production, uh, and it has been historically um, since its discovery. Now, in Florida in the late 1880s, it was actually a surveyor who first discovered that there were deposits of phosphorus rock uh, in parts of central and uh, southwest Florida, uh, and that really spurred what became kind of a, a gold rush, if you will, in Florida. Mining companies began springing up throughout that part of, uh, of the state, uh, and originally, uh, Originally, the process started uh, essentially by mining with, with pick and shovel and by hand, and most of that mining was done in uh, lake and stream beds throughout uh, parts of southwest Florida. But as technology progressed, so did the mining operations, and, and some of the larger mines covered hundreds of acres, and, and it was essentially strip mining, and it's really how it's done today also. Uh, rather than being underground, like one might imagine with gold mining or diamond mining, uh, the pits are, are entirely open. So uh, the process begins with the clearing of land after the discovery of phosphate deposits. Uh, land was then cleared, and usually uh, machines would dig down between 20 to 40 feet to get to the actual uh, deposits themselves. And the process after that is fairly simple. Uh, workers would use, uh, uh, again, originally using pick and shovel. They would extract the rock itself, uh, and then later they would extract kind of a finer pebble. That pebble would then be blasted with water to create what they call a matrix or a slurry matrix uh, that would then be sent to a processing facility. Uh, the phosphorus is removed from uh, the clay and other uh, what they call overburden, uh, and then the phosphorus is loaded onto trains or now trucks, uh, shipped off to uh, another processing facility to be produced into fertilizer or something like that. And a lot of the products are actually shipped overseas as well. But that was really the process. Now that overburden that we talked about before uh, historically was just piled up into these giant mountains. And uh, we hear of a lot of early accounts of people playing on these giant mountains, but uh, we've come to find out now that uh, uh, it's hazardous to health and, and contains trace amounts of uh, uranium and other hazardous materials. Um, but that's essentially the process, and that's really what uh, uh, changed the not only the, the physical face of the landscape of uh, southwest Florida, but economically, too. It really changed economics of the area uh, in the beginning of the 20th century and actually throughout the 20th century. And we have here some early first-hand accounts of phosphate mining in Florida. Yes, what we're looking at today is a, uh, a field journal that was written in 1908 by a gentleman named Robert O. Beattie. Now, Robert Beattie, we, we haven't been able to find out much about him. We don't know uh, why he was here in Florida and why he actually produced this journal, um, but it contains probably some of the most accurate and detailed accounts of the mining operation itself, the actual technical aspects of mining uh, in this uh, during this time period in Florida. Now, 1908, keep in mind, this is really the uh, the height of uh, mining operations. So um, th the mining fever has really set in in southwest Florida. And what we think, uh, Mr. Beattie was probably an investor who was coming down from uh, New York. We do know he was from New York, uh, coming down to Florida to survey the landscape, possibly to invest in a mining operation or to start his own uh, mining operation. The journal itself picks up on October 15th, 1908. Uh, he arrives in Tampa. And Mr. Beattie is, is incredibly detailed. He uh, gives us the weather. Uh, it was 81 degrees when he first landed, uh, gives us the population of Tampa, uh, some uh, statistical rundown of uh, the, the county itself and the city of Tampa, then goes into shipping details. How is the phosphate being shipped out of Tampa? How is it loaded onto ships? How efficient is that process? Uh, he also visits a number of uh, these mining camps. Uh, just outside of Tampa, within uh, shipping distance from Tampa. He talks about the rail lines. He visits one mine in particular called the Medulla Mines, which 
uh, were about 30 miles outside of Tampa. Uh, and he describes the, uh, uh, the process itself, where the overburden is uh, being stored, what kind of machines are operating, um, and how much land is actually being uh, produced at that time. Uh, he goes as far south as Fort Myers, and there he stops. And in fact, he even mentions, quote, that Fort Myers is uh, anywhere south of Fort Myers is uh, home to Seminoles and uh, criminals, <laughs> and then heads back north to Tampa. If we open up this page here, we actually have a, a handwritten sketch of one of these uh, mines as it would have appeared in 1908, uh, showing where the storehouses were, uh, the shops, the drying house, the washing machines, uh, where the, the dams were, where the water was coming from and where it was going to, uh, which is incredibly important. Uh, he even shows it here on this dotted line where the steam engine was working during the time period when he was there. He interviewed a number of the uh, people who were working at the plants, the foremans, and even the laborers. He notes how much these laborers are being paid. He also notes um, who is doing the work. Most of the labor is actually done by African Americans. Uh, he notes that a, a typical day covers between 11 to 12 hours, and they were only paid a dollar twenty-five. Uh, for an entire day's worth of work. And it was incredibly arduous. And you can imagine, uh, especially the early uh, part of the operation, they were, they were digging with pick and shovel, digging by hand to, to extract this rock. So it was incredibly arduous work. And later on, that led to some labor strikes. There were uh, strikes that occurred uh, uh, in decades after Mr. Beattie had visited the land. But all in all, we get a sense that he is um, uh, uh, agreeable to at least investing probably in some mining operation. At the very end of his journal, it ends uh, about October 26th, and it sounds like he uh, uh, is it has decided that he will either move operations down there or invest partially in one of these mining operations. Now, in the mid-20th century, Florida was one of the biggest suppliers of phosphate around the world. Is phosphate mining still significant in Florida today? It is. In fact, Florida produces between 60 to 75 percent of the country's uh, phosphate uh, and about 20 percent of the world's phosphate. And again, 90 percent of that is used in the production of fertilizer. Now, of course, that fertilizer is used throughout the country to grow the food that we eat today. Uh, so essentially, a part of Florida is in everything that we eat. Uh, and it's uh, still an enormous industry and, and, again, mostly southwest Florida. But there's also kind of an interesting side effect to that. With these open pit mines uh, and the phosphate itself, it was um, produced in an area called Bone Valley. And we call that Bone Valley because there are thousands of uh, uh, ancient artifacts, these large uh, mammals and ancient sea creatures that lived along this part of, of Florida when Florida was still underwater. And as a result of that, we get the phosphorus that's, uh, uh, that's produced from uh, the remains of these animals. But we also have the, the bones that are found. And there are museums all over the state that are dedicated just to the uh, remains of these large animals that were found in phosphate mines. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. In the early 20th century, railroad dining cars offered an elegant dining experience to rival a fancy restaurant. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. There are still dining cars even on Amtrak. You don't get the same experience today on Amtrak that you would have gotten on one of the individual railroads, say, back in the 1930s, 40s, or 50s. It's a totally different experience today. It's far less uh, elegant to eat in the dining car today than it was back in you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, in that, that time period. That was Philip Cross, president of the Central Florida Chapter 
of the National Railway Historical Society. He spoke to me about dining cars on railroads during the 20th century. He brought me out to the Central Florida Railroad Museum in Winter Garden, Florida, where on display are artifacts from railroads that traveled throughout Florida. He took me to a corner of the museum where on display are photos and objects from railway dining cars. I asked him to describe for me what a typical dining car would look like. Generally, um, tables were on both sides of the car next to the window. There was an aisle in the center. Most of the tables would have sat um, a group of up to four people. They would have some tables that were for two people. Uh, most all of them had a very fine linen tablecloth, and the, the um, place settings would already be in place when you came to take your seat and, and have your meal. A lot of trains had their own dining car, you know, china and silver. Uh, sometimes it would have been railroad-wide. There was no difference. But, but sometimes cer certain special trains or, or uh, highly visible trains would have their own um, set of dining car, uh, china and silver. They had menus as well. And you could order from, from that menu. Um, and, of course, everything was laid out in, the, in exactly the same order. All the, the plates would be polished. All the silver was highly polished. Um, it was a truly a... Uh, an elegant dining experience to eat on a railroad dining car. What really caught my eye were the colorful menus on display. Menus were very colorful. Um, of course, you know, all the railroads were in competition, so each one would try to outdo the other one. Um, they would be very um, unique, very colorful. They would have a wide array of foods, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. There would be, a, uh, you know, a, a nice selection of you know, salads, um, sides, entrees, uh, desserts. It wasn't just maybe a choice of one or two items. They would have many items as choices. What I did not know was that there were private dining cars on the railroads. Philip Cross explains. The private cars on the railroads were used by either the railroad owners or the railroad upper management, and they were used to transport um, these uh, important folks from one location on the railroad to another. Those cars would have sleeping facilities, they would have bathroom facilities, shower facilities, they would have their own kitchen and, and dining area on some of those cars. Their meals were probably more um, elegant, more extravagant than, than those that were offered to the public riding the train. Private cars are still in use today on some of the larger railroads. They still have private cars for their upper management. We have to thank collectors for the fact that we have these artifacts from the railroads. Mr. Cross tells me why these objects have been preserved. Anything railroad, and especially if it's railroad marked, is collectible in, in today's um, society and in, in today's collecting. Any piece of china that, first of all, is not railroad marked, either on the top or the back, is less desirable. Th the next level would be if it's marked with the railroad's letters only. Like Florida East Coast Railway would be F-E-C-R-Y. If it had the name spelled out, that would be even more collectible. And the, the ultimate collectible is the pieces of china that have the railroad logo on them. 
you know, ironically, the railroads, when they first started having all this equipment, they marked it with their name in an effort to curb stealing. But that certainly didn't. And that, and that is the desirable uh, items or any that's railroad marked. That was Philip Cross. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida Podcast. You can find it on iTunes and on the internet. I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online at myfloridahistory.org or get us as a podcast. Don't miss the new television series version of Florida Frontiers airing on public television stations throughout the state, including WUCF-TV Orlando, WPBT South Florida, WJCT Jacksonville, WUSF Tampa, and WFSU Tallahassee. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.